Um, hello everyone and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. This week you're in the Cranog once more where our team of presenters are going to share some stories and have some chats. This week, since Halloween is coming up, we're doing everything spooky in Scottish folklore. I'm Rebecca and I'm joined by... David. Graham. Rasheen. Okay, on you go. My story this week is about the witches of Pollock House. Lord George Maxwell of Pollock saw himself as a man of God. He took his ordained mission seriously and did not resent the long nights away from the warm hearth. You see, there were witches to hunt. Maxwell was an avid witch hunter, so of course it was not long before the terrible beasts turned their eyes upon him. In 1676, Maxwell had returned from a successful witch trial, his nostril hair still delightfully singed from the heat of the flame, his ears still ringing from their sweet screams. His good humour was not to last. He soon fell ill with a hot and fiery distemper, describing agony akin to being stabbed in the side. As the servants bustled about the stately home, about an hour's walk away from the centre of Glasgow, one young woman looked on. Janet Douglas was deaf and mute, but she worked hard, and mute servants hardly ever complain. But Janet, like her lord, also felt a calling. Miraculously, her voice returned to her. What should she do with her newfound gift? Why, find the witches responsible for her lord's illness, of course. Janet calmly proclaimed that the lord's illness was a dark spell laid upon him by witches. Her return to speech, lending her some kind of alluring mysticism, she led servants from the manor to the house of Janet Mathy, the midwife of a nearby village of Pollockshaw. Raising her crooked finger imperiously, Janet opened her mouth and croaked, not using your voice for a year has to take its toll, of course. You shall find the dark relic in the house of this witch. Upon searching the cluttered abode of the bewildered woman, the men did indeed report that they had found a wax figurine hidden behind a portrait by the fireplace. Yet Janet was not quite finished yet. Bessie Weir, Margaret Jackson, Marjorie Craig, Matthew's son John Stewart, her 14-year-old daughter Annabel Stewart, all stood accused of the vilest of crimes, witchcraft. And so the torture, sorry, reasonable and well-evidenced investigation began. Each confessed to meeting with the devil, citing their hatred of Maxwell as well as their bond in casting the curse upon him. Janet housed the meeting, John stuck pins in the doll, Bessie turned the spit and spoke the words. Of course, all of these events happened in a confusing chronological pattern, but witches are notorious for their bad timekeeping. Mother accused son and sister accused brother. Marjorie's mysterious past in Ireland became a witch fleeing her terrible crime. Bessie's widowhood, the cause behind her seduction by the devil. Margaret, well, Margaret was an in-law, but they're just as bad. Their trial took place in 1677, and all but one was strangled and burned on Gallows Green in Paisley. Young Annabel was given reprieve, expected to thank those who burned her mother alive and shipped to a convent for spiritual healing. And what of Janet Douglas? Well, soon after the trial she vanished, her nostril hair is delightfully singed by the warmth of the flame. Some say she travelled to Edinburgh on her divine mission. Others, to Salem, curing the world of more vulnerable women in the witch trials a mere seven years later. Maxwell died, of course not long after the five others died on his orders. Perhaps a real witch in all this was Janet, 
bent on avenging her sisters and not caring about the cost along the way. Perhaps it was another, the Highland woman mentioned by Annabelle in her confession. Maybe it was the dark creature inside all men, wanting to burn out any sign of difference or strangeness, epitomised by a woman who spoke too loud or too soft, who liked the boys or didn't like them enough. But if you're feeling very brave, why not ask the witches themselves? They still wander Pollock House even now, forever searching for Janet Douglas. Ooh. Ooh. Those goddamn witches. You know what? They're just ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> how dare a woman know how to read or be ugly? <laughs> they should know their place. I like how the one that they didn't think was a witch was the one that suddenly miraculously became able to speak. Yes, it, the pattern, like, no questions asked. They were just like, ah, oh, yes, this makes sense. Um, there's an actual, I found a really great resource online. So it's all of the witch cases in Scotland have been digitized. So you can look up the trials and the notes and all the cases. And it is interesting to see. So the description of the devil was the same in all of them. But I don't know if that's, you know, taken from one and then given to all the different cases but again it was super interesting to see all of the varying reports so the wax figurine the relic that they use they said in one report that it was found behind janet matthew's fireplace and another it was in her son's bed and then another said it was in annabelle's room and then another said it was in uh the margaret's the in-laws her 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 house so it doesn't really make sense. It says that um, John stuck pins in them after Maxwell arrested his mother, but they were all kind of arrested around the same time. So I, I don't know where that would have come in. But no, it, you know, like all witch trials, you don't really know what's going on. Are you trying to insinuate these witches were stitched up, Roshi? <laughs> that they weren't actually real witches? <laughs> I would never. I've always been amazed at how... Uh... All witches seem to be a grass. Like, they always grass up the mates. Six people. Uh, and they're all like, oh, you know, actually, it was my friend Bessie who was turning the spit. So <laughs> roasting the poor wax figure over the fire. And it's like, leave Bessie alone. Well, you know, witches get stitches. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> I love the idea that Janet could secretly be a witch. And she was just projecting. It's so strange. She came out of nowhere. There was no records of her before she came to Pollock. And then afterwards, so there's one historian who believes that they found her in Edinburgh. And then she was banished from Edinburgh for basically doing the same thing and accusing a bunch of women for witchcraft. And then to Newcastle, where she married, uh, uh, married, married a preacher. <laughs> if you marry a preacher, you get married. <laughs> Weirdly enough, a really common myth is that she went over to uh, Salem and participated in the witch trials over there. And is there any evidence of that? Or is it just held as a general belief? I think I think it's more of a general belief. The one historian I did see who was speaking about it said that the only woman who would have been about her age in the Salem uh, witch trials had a completely different name and a traceable history. So, you know, unless there was something dodgy going on. Like witchcraft. <laughs> yes, her evil twin. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of dangerous creatures 
in Scottish folklore. But nothing, and I mean nothing, compares to the horrible, the terrifying, and the downright evil Knuckle We should maybe count our blessings that this creature only haunts the Northern Isles. Its mere description strikes fear into ordinary people. And the sight of the beast wasn't enough to make you collapse, and his breath would. Out of its gaping mouth spewed a stench that wilted crops, sickened livestock, almost every single problem that befell the islanders, from droughts to blights, was blamed on a knuckle It was a name that many wouldn't even dare to whisper. Now its, its name means Devil of the Sea, although it's only when Nukalavi is ashore that it spreads its terror. During the summer, it's held back by the mither of the sea, but as her strength wanes with the spread of autumn, the monster starts to come ashore. The only thing that will drive off the Nukalavi is fresh water, and fortunately, that includes Scottish rain. So, late one night, no doubt after a few shandies, an islander called Tamis was walking home by the light of a bright moon. So he reached a section of the path with the sea on one side of him and a little freshwater loch on the other and suddenly he stops in his tracks. Something was moving towards him up ahead. Tamis thought, that must be somebody on horseback, but as it was getting closer he started to realise it was far, far too big. Whatever it was, he had that cold dread down his back that told him, it wasn't good. But with water on both sides of him, Thomas had nowhere to go but backwards, and there was no chance he was turning his back on this monster. He stood his ground and he said a little prayer as he began to make out the horrible figure of the Nukalavi before him. So it was a strange hybrid of man and horse, seemingly fused together. The head of the man was enormous, with a mouth sticking out like the snout of a pig. It had arms so long that it could reach the ground without even bending over. The wide mouth of the horse's head was sneering at him, while steam belched out of it, its single red eye staring right into him like fire. That wasn't the worst part, though. The terrifying knuckle wasn't just hairless, but it's completely skinless as well. Thomas watched as the Red, raw flesh writhed as this creature, like it had been turned inside out. Even in the dim moonlight you could make out black blood pumping through its veins. The Tamis's eyes kept moving over the beast while he was stuck fast with fear, and it steadily walked towards him. The head of the human-esque part of the monster was rolling around like it was going to fall off at any moment. And that cold dread down his back had turned to pure ice. Thomas was shaking like a leaf. Only thing he knew was that Nukalavi, it can't stand fresh water. So he forced his legs back towards the loch. As Thomas stood awaiting his fate, the horse head lowered down in line with his. His vast jaws opened up like a terrifying yawn and a hot stench filled his nose. The huge arms swung down to grab the terrified man, but instinctively stepped back into the loch and splashed water onto one of the horse's legs. The beast let out a horrible, 
thundering snort as it stepped away from the water and the swooping hands they just missed dragging Tannis with them. He saw his chance. He darted past and with fear serving like a rocket up his backside, Tamis legged it along the edge of the loch. He knew there was a little river ahead. If he could make it that far, then the Knuckle wouldn't dare fall. But he wasn't there yet, and the monster was hot on his heels. You could hear the snorting and roaring behind him like a storm on his tail. And just as he reached the river, he felt more than he saw the long swinging arms coming for him, and he dove straight into the water. Then, wading to the other side, Thomas looked back to see the Nicolavi screeching on the other bank. As he panted for breath, he saw the only thing he'd lost was his bonnet hanging from those enormous arms. So, if you ever do visit the Northern Isles, especially Orkney, then maybe you should just wish for rain. But one thing's for certain, you don't ever mention the Nicolavi's name out loud. And, uh, sorry for the... Uh, Sound uh, that was from the Molly. best foley work I've ever heard. He was running along. I could hear him running. She did this before, and like, I'd be sitting in my chair trying to record a story, and she would just settle down. So I'd start thinking, and then I get like three minutes in, and she'd just walk over and just start crunching food really loudly. I, th- I did think you had like a little sound effect player going. That was a really good story. Nightmarish. That's what I was trying to think. It was like, what is the most terrifying Scottish creature I could think of? And it's up there between that and the Bavanchi. Like things like that, like the Bavanchi, it's all about, you know, seducing you and, you know, being like vampire stuff. This is just sheer terror. Just grotesque. <laughs> just yeah. like Googling images of it. And it's like everyone's slightly different, but they are all terrifying. I think it's just the added, the detail of no skin. That's what gets me. Just why, what, where did they get that? Because if you talked about, like, headless horsemen or, uh, you know, like, centaur, you can see how, like, scary man on a horse in a dark night would lead to that kind of folklore. But the fact it's massive, no skin, stinking breath and f- one single flaming eye. I have to wonder where that came from because like there's some creatures that you can understand. I think we've spoken in the past about like maybe people with bad eyesight seeing like a blurry shape and being like that's a brownie. Who made this up? Who came up with this creature? Yeah. Well I did a lot of trying to find out and it's you know one of these nobody really knows. Everyone thinks it's sort of like lots of bits it's because you know you only find it Orkney and Shetland. Like, it's mostly... Everybody talks about it being from Orkney, but that's because the Nukalavi's from Orkney, while Shetland has something that... I, I'm not going to pronounce it properly, but it's very similar. It's like the Mukalavi. Like, it's... You know, and they think it's... Those two groups of islands have basically got probably the weirdest mishmash of Norse and Celtic and, you know, all these different yeah. things. They think it's a bit like a Kelpie. It's a bit mm. like things from hideous things from Norse mythology and you know, it's all just sort of mashed together literally fused together yeah the rest of Scottish creatures even the slightly more like sinister ones they don't tend to have quite a, as visceral uh, a reason to be scared of them 
part of their thing and a lot of them is like luring you in so like the kelpie and the like the ikushu and the beautiful horse idea um yeah. like uh, as you say like the Bavon she the quite attractive women normally like luring people in whereas and like brownie's fairly inconspicuous little cute creature with it's just this, a it's just a, a proper monster. <laughs> it is, and it's got no reason to want to do the things it does. It just doesn't. It's what it's there for. That's the thing. Yeah. All other creatures seem to have some sort of duality to them. Or, you know, you occasionally, you know, you hear, you know, there's Kelpie stories where the Kelpie's not so bad, or the Kelpie of Loch Garve, or, you know, fairies can be, you know, tricky and, you know, they do their stuff but you know you get nice stories from them as well but this is literally it's just there to make the people of Orkney's lives hell. Is it normally mentioned as like one specific like individual creature or is it like a type of creature normally? I think I think it's one. The way it reads is like it is a thing and it's held back by the mither of the sea which is sounds an awful awfully lot like the whole um Kaliak and, and yeah, I was thinking that she holds it back through summer, or more specifically, holds back. I think she's got a sort of Kaliak um, equivalent that she keeps in check, and then as she sort of fades, that um, gets stronger, and that's what allows the Nakalavi to come ashore and do the things that he does. It's not even as if there's like a you know how there's a moral behind a lot of these things like don't go near the water or like come prepared with a poem when you cross the minch. Um, there's nothing like that. It's just like hope for rain yeah. and good luck. <laughs> well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's actually it's not that bad. It's raining. It's... <laughs> yeah. I did like the detail as well about um, the name being able to summon the the creature because that is quite common in folklore. So. Even recent folklore, well, I say recent, but, you know, from my childhood hearing about Bloody Mary, and I still, if I'm in a bathroom alone, I'm not saying her name three times. It is that thing of, yeah, if you, you know, if you talk about it, you're bringing it upon yourself, I guess. But it's true as well with um, she, uh, the she, right? Uh, you're not supposed to say their name if you're walking through, or if you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden the birds go quiet and you can't hear the insects. And sometimes you do walk through the woods and you feel like you're not alone and you can't quite see what's there, but like there's something that's watching you. And apparently if you, if you say she or you invoke the fair folk at any point, then they'll come and, they'll come and kill you for trespassing. And then it's the opposite way as well. If they ask you what your name is, um, I think we had, I can't remember what the story was, but I'm sure we had one recently where it's like you... Um, it's a bit like nobody in Odysseus, you know, Odysseus and Polythemus, when he's like, my name is nobody. I, I know yeah. a, there's a brownie story about that. About yeah. a brownie, and he catches somebody trying to like make a cake or something in a mill, and he's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm just nobody. And he's, yeah. and he's like, no, who are you? Like, I'm nobody. And then I think she like chucks a stool at him or something and like <laughs> gives him a black eye and he goes back to his mum and she's like, who did that to you? Nobody. Or something like that. Names, man. Same with um, elements. So, like, to kill a witch, you must burn them. You can't just... I mean, they strangle them. I'm fairly certain that'll kill a person. But you have to burn them. Or you have to drown them. So it's all about, like, elemental death. It can't just be death by man. And so same with the Nuklavi. You have to... 
it has to be water. And I think there is myths about witches not being able to cross running water as well. That's quite common. So while I was researching Scottish ghost stories to tell, I found an awful lot about Jacobite ghosts. The Jacobites really intrigue me. There's this romantic and tragic element to them, so they really do make for some fantastic ghost stories. Uh, these ones I'm about to tell aren't so much fully fleshed out stories like the ones that we've heard, um, but I found so many interesting ghosts on the subject that I thought I would just give a snapshot of some of them. A lot of this information comes from a website called About Aberdeen, so credit where credit is due. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. I'm just the vessel of communication for this information. So firstly, a bit of info on the Jacobites themselves. The word Jacobite comes from the Latin Jacobus, meaning James, and the Jacobites were fighting to restore the Stuart dynasty to the throne of Scotland and England after King James VII of Scotland and II of England, who was a Catholic, was deposed in favour of William of Orange, who was a Protestant. It's important to know that this was not a Scotland versus England scenario. It was very much more centred on religion and monarchy and government, and there were Scots on both sides. So, even so, the Jacobite uprising, their defeat, and the aftermath do tell a story of Highland oppression, and that is partly why they are so tragic and why we have so many ghosts surrounding them. So our first ghost is the floating head of Killiecrankie. The Battle of Killiecrankie happened in 1689 during a revolt that sought to put James VII back on the throne. The Jacobites under John Graham, Viscount Dundee, actually achieved a victory over the government forces, but it was an incredibly bloody battle on both sides, with over 2,000 men overall being killed, including the Viscount Dundee. It's said that every year on the anniversary of the battle, the whole pass of Killiecrankie is filled with the sound of government forces marching to their death. Some reports include drums and the sounds of battle or a Highlander figure, though one in particular is a floating head that appears. There isn't anything to say whether the head is of a government soldier or a Jacobite, but given the state of the government army after the battle, around 2,000 of their men were wounded, killed or missing, and 800 Jacobites were killed, which is a lot, but not nearly as many as 2,000. It's probably safe to assume who the head belongs to in that case. It really speaks to the violence of the battle, because in other instances a severed head may indicate an execution, which, while brutal, it still sounds weird to say this, but clean. There's a procedure, there's a single blade involved and it's neatly done, whereas a severed head in the middle of a battle, while it may have been struck clean off in one go by a single blade, it still somehow feels more visceral and more violent and chilling. That being said, the head might not belong to a government soldier at all. It might be a Jacobite. I think we're more predisposed to place the blame for violent acts on the Jacobites and Highlanders because that is how Highland culture was perceived by the ruling classes. They were seen as ill-educated, barbarians and lesser. And we're going to see in the next story about Culloden that the government forces weren't any better. So we now move to the 16th of April 1746 at Culloden Moor. Culloden is undoubtedly the most famous battle of the Jacobite Rising and is believed not only to be the last battle fought on Scottish soil but British soil as a whole. The 45 Rebellion, as it's called, saw the Jacobites under Bonnie Prince Charlie or Charles Edward Stuart, uh, otherwise known as the Young Pretender or the Young Chevalier, up against the troops of the House of Hanover government. 
The battle saw 5,400 Jacobites against 9,000 Hanoverian troops. The Battle of Claudin was an absolute bloodbath. Only 50 Hanoverians were killed, while the majority of Jacobites fell within 40 minutes of the battle commencing, and those who fled were hunted down and murdered, as well as their property being burned and their women and children killed. The Hanoverian troops were led by the Duke of Cumberland, son of George II, known as the Butcher, on account of the way that he would have his enemies who were wounded in the field, killed and often mutilated. He showed no mercy, which is part of the sheer tragedy of Culloden, and many of the Jacobites were buried where they fell. I'd really love to go there someday. I feel like the atmosphere would be just so haunting and poignant. Uh, there are many ghosts on Culloden Moor. One in particular that stood out to me was a Highlander in his full uniform who wanders around with a weary face, quietly saying the word defeated to those that he meets. Uh, this is such a sad image. You tend to associate ghosts with malevolence and frightening people, even if they don't mean to. Their presence alone is chilling and it feels threatening. But this one is just gut-wrenching. You can really get a sense of the shock in the 40-minute massacre that this poor guy is still wandering around, unsure even today of what hit him, and just muttering disbelief to himself as he's trying to convince himself of what happened. Defeated. We got defeated. This one isn't so much a ghost, but it's said that birds don't sing at the site of the battle and the heather on Culloden Moor will not cover the graves of the fallen. They say that the land remembers these kinds of tragedies and heather is such an iconographic Scottish image, especially in the Highlands, so it just makes it all the more poignant. It's like the land itself is mourning. So I hope I've not bummed everyone out too much with that. Um, Culloden and, ja and the Jacobites are quite a heavy subject. But we do see so many ghost stories um, that are scary, um, even when they're not trying to be scary, but ghosts at the end of the day come from a remnant of trauma. And I just find it fascinating when we have ghosts who are straight up tragic. And I think this feeds in really well with Scottish history and folklore as a theme. I think a lot of themes in our history and stories are very sad and very tragic, or if not tragic, at least melancholic. And these ghosts really speak for themselves in that sense. But in saying that, me and David had a discussion earlier on where I was talking about how I see Scottish history and folklore and stories as tragic and melancholic and David said that he actually saw them as more light-hearted and um, happy in the sense that you get the brownie, etc. Um, so I'm just curious to see what other people think about how they associate Scottish folklore and the mood that comes with it. I, I agree with you about the um, the sort of tragic side to Scottish folk stories because just you know as we've been going along putting out all these stories it, it did hit me that I was like god these are really bumming people out <laughs> like the end of every story and I'd, you know, I'd be sitting there doing, trying to do one every day and then thinking I need to try and find a happy one, but I need to spread them out because I don't have that many. Like there aren't so many sort of fun, happy, or you know, any that sort of thing. They are mostly, and to be fair, I imagine it's because people like a bit of tragedy in a story. Like that's one of the things that makes a good story. Nobody really wants to hear about the time that folk went for the tea and had a great day. I thought that I've seemed to have come across a lot more cheery ones, or maybe I just view things as more cheery than they are I don't know you've got that sunny disposition that's why I think as well when I go through some of the stories like I like to look at 
a lot of the much older texts, so like the kind of writings from like the 17th century or like kind of early 18th century, and the stories there, they're not so much tragic or happy, but most of them just don't make a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> so it's normally trying to interpret them into something that makes sense in the modern day, and maybe I take more of a positive spin on it and turn it that way, whereas other people might read it more negatively. I don't know. You'd see an approaching Niklavi, David, and you'd go, oh, friend. Aren't you a funny little chap? <laughs> what a handsome knot skin you have. When you think about folk music as well, though, like, the best Scottish folk songs are the ones where people die. The one that stands out to me is this one called the... Oh, God, I'm not going to pronounce this well at all, but it's called the... Iolair... It's definitely not, but that's how I'm thinking of it in my head. It's by Skippinish, and it's about uh, a boat that came back to Stornoway after, I think it was after World War One. I'm probably wrong on that as well, but it was New Year's Eve. All of the women were waiting on the shore for them to come home, and the boat hit troubled waters, and they all drowned in front of the women. And... Like, it's such a sad song, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> uh, I will concede to your tragic Scottish songs, because our folk songs do tend to... you got Scots Wahey, which is sounds upbeat in the music tempo, but a lot of the lyrics very tragic. Flower of Scotland's not even that cheery. Then you've got, like... Um, kiss. You'll take the high road, I take the low road. Yeah. All about people die. Yeah. To be honest, think just thinking of folk stories, so many of them were written down for the first time in like the 1800s there seems to be all these like ministers and reverends that took it upon themselves to collect local stories and write them down and that's what we've got as like our basis but obviously these would be you know they might be much older stories and maybe the whole post culloden effect came in and all these stories you know were maybe a bit twinged with a bit more sadness and everybody had a bit of a, a gloomier outlook at that time while David if you're reading things from before that maybe maybe everybody was happy before that I mean I think you're right though about you know like sometimes the nostalgia and the longing for past is so strong in Scotland so you can't help but like almost interpret stories in that way about like oh this is these are things that we have lost now because of the lack of you know uh, speaking Gaelic and the Highland clearances and Culloden and the Union of the Crowns. Just the whole, whole sorry mess of it. The whole shebang. The whole shebang. But no, I was at Culloden last week. Didn't have any um, kilted Highlanders coming up and telling me they were defeated. <laughs> All I can picture is the guy from, was it Dad's Army, who just walks about saying, we're doomed. Uh... So was the atmosphere at Culloden like as haunting as they say it is. It was, I mean, it's it's very gloomy. I mean, that's the thing that you notice. It's like they've done their best to make it gloomy. Like, it, it is quite atmosphere, and I don't know, I mean, I've been there before a couple of times, and it does always seem to be, like, cloudy or drizzly or something like that. It's never, like, I've been to Bannockburn, it's always, like, a sunny day anytime I go there. I also, I needed to toilet the entire time I was there, and the visitor said I was shut, so it kind of ruined it a little bit, because I was like, I need to get around this, like, quick, so I can go to Tesco. I did go as a kid, and I can't say I felt anything other than, like, when are we going to leave this big green field, Dad? Um, but, like, my I do remember my dad was very moved by it, I think, because he was a Scot abroad, um, growing up in an army camp. So 
sometimes like that connection to history is like isn't there until you go to the place and you're like oh actually like I have ancestors that fought here that I can trace back there's like a grave here that I know belongs to someone in my family kind of thing well I was just going to say because we haven't talked about it yet it's Killy Cranky I love Killy Cranky it's, a, it's one of my favourite places this is the best time of year as well when it's all like gold and orange and red and, but you go there you like it's the soldiers leap the bit where Donald Bean jumped the river to get away from chasing um, Highlanders and like it's just it's a really, it's a really cool place no I, I love some Scottish place names are honestly the best to say Killy Cranky Octomukti I grew up like five miles from Mukti seriously Oh, you must have just been saying it all day. My favourite one's Echo Feckin, down by your way. <laughs> no, your favourite one is just A. Oh, my, the Forest of A is my favourite one. It's just spelled A. What about the town of Dull that's paired with Boring USA? I'm going to talk about um, Tam O'Shanter. It's a, a poem in Scotland synonymous with the Halloween time. Um, it's the biggest, I believe, work of by Robert Burns, our national poet. Um, and it, I think it's a very interesting insight to views at the time of drunkenness and witches and ghouls and why we look back at now when we're hearing it as something that is a fun story. At the time Robert Burns wrote this, it was... Um, I think maybe 40, 50 years after they'd abolished the witch, uh, the Act of Parliament that made it possible for them to prosecute witches. Um, he was born just, uh, I think, 23 years after it was abolished. So it was still within living memory of there actually being witches who were held as such and burned on the stake for it. Um, that he wrote this poem that seems somewhat more jovial and, and jokey about it, which I found quite interesting. Rather than going through the whole thing, because it would take about 10-15 minutes, I'm going to pick a few of the most kind of ghoulish verses and have a little chat about each one of them kind of afterwards. So the first one, um, I'll just mention to where we got to at this point of the first one I'm going to go through. Uh, Tama Shanter's been getting drunk at the pub with Suter Johnny. They've been having a great old time. His wife's not too much pleased. She's sitting at home, grumpy as out. They've all been telling him not to get absolutely hammered because he'll find his way getting home difficult. His horse is good, but she's no that good because he keeps getting waylaid by every light or shiny thing in the distance. But he's gone on anyway. He's been booted at the pub. It's finished and he's on his way home. Um, and he takes a most precarious route home. And this is describing part of his route home. By the time... Oh, by this time he was crossed the ford. Where in the snow the chapman smored, and past the burks and meekle stain, where drunken Charlie Brackneck's bane, and through the winds and by the cairn, where hunters found the murdered bairn, and near the thorn aboon the well, where Mungo's mother hanged her cell. Before him doon pours all his floods, the doubling storm roars through the woods, the lightning flash from pole to pole, near and more near the thunder rolls, when glimmering through the groaning trees, Kirk Calloway seemed in a blaze. Through Elkabor the beams were glancing, and loud resounding mirth and dancing. So he's decided to go for a, a fun route past all these sites of murders and suicides, and just your typical route home. Um, yeah. Which I think is, is the fun way that he's decided to set the scene for that one, for 
very much a foreboding evening. It's dark, it's rainy, it's lightning, and he's going past every seeming haunted site they could find. It was a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night indeed. <laughs> so, having set the scene, um, he's spotted Kirk Alloway, and he's decided, with the lights he's seen, he's going to go have a bit of an investigation, see what's going on, drunken state, maybe there's a party going, he can get another drink. Um, but what he sees was uh, something quite different to what he expected. Warlocks and witches in a dance. Nay, Cotillon bred new fray fan- France, but hornpipes, jigs, strathbays and reels put life and metal in their heels. A winnock bunker in the east, there sat old Nick in shape a beast. A tussy tight, black, grim and large, to gee the music way his charge. He screwed the pipes and get them skirl, till roof and rafters added dirl. Coffins stood round like open presses that shod the dead in their last dresses. By some devilish catrape slight, each in its cold hand held a light, by which heroic Tam was able to note upon the haley table. So he's had a look through, he's seen all of the demonic people. What's going on? He's not decided at that point that he's just going to bugger off. He's, he's decided to have a proper investigation of what was lying about. And I think this is one of the bits I find most graphic and Halloween-y of his, his description of what lay about. A murderous bane in gibbet's urns, twa span long way unchristened bairns. A thief new cutted frae a rape, where his last gasp is gub did gape. Five tomahawks were bleed red rusted, five scimitars were murder crusted. A garter which a babe was strangled, a knife a father's throat was mangled. From his ain son of life bereft, the grey hairs yet stuck to the heft, were made of horrible and awful, which even to name would be unlawful. So, he's, he's no cutting his words there, Robert Burns. He's, he's spotted by every murder tool you can think of. Um, and clearly something shown that being unchristened at the time was still seen as very dodgy, since they've got a, a big length of them on a strength <laughs> God. Um, and he's decided to mention all those things and state anything else would be unlawful which not sure what else he's, he's seen in there but uh, can it be great um, so they're all having a great old party and it continues on from there and he's, he's liking what he's seeing he's, he's spotted the ball he's, they're all having a good time but he's found one person in particular he's taken, taken a fancy for and um, he can't help himself as as music gets into a frenzy he's, he's bewitched by her and shouts out Wheel done cutty sack which proves to be a, a, a bit of a dodgy move on his part because and in an instant all went dark and scarcely had he Maggie rallied when out the hellish legion sallied as bees buzz out with angry fike when plundered herds assail their bike and open pussy's mortal foes then pop she starts before their nose as eager runs the market crowd, when catch the thief resounds aloud. So Maggie runs the witches follow, when Moni and Eldritch screech and hollow, Ah tam, ah tam, thou get thy fairin, and hell thou roast thee like a heron. In vain thy Kate awaits thy coming, Kate soon will be a woeful woman. Now do thy speedy utmost Meg, and win the keystain o' the brig. There at them thou thy tail may cross, a running stream they dare na cross, but ere the keystain she should make, that faint a tail she had to shake, for Nanny far before the rest had upon noble Maggie, pre- Maggie pressed, 
and flew at tam with various ettle, but little wist the Maggie's nettle. A spring brought all her master hail, but left behind her in great tail. The carlins clawed her by the rump and left poor Maggie scarce a stump. So the 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 faithful horse Maggie has, has saved Tam's life by managing to cross the keystone in the bridge. And of course, as we all know that now, and as mentioned earlier, witches cannot cross running water. Or at least these ones can't. Um, so Scottish witch Scottish witches can't cross running water. Um and she has lost her tail in the process though, but uh, hopefully she'll grow that back later on. So for the last wee paragraph, just to round us off. Now while this tale the truth shall read, Ilk man and mother's son take heed. Were to drink you are inclined, or cutty sarks run in your mind. Think ye me by the joys o' oh dear, remember Tam O'Shanter's mare. So, uh, uh, quite an epic poem there from Robert Burns. I think it was 270, 280 lines, something like that. A big behemoth. A behemoth of a poem. And um, I had a little look to see whether it was based on any specific previous folklore because he did he was influenced a lot by folklore and um, a lot of his songs were actually collections of earlier songs in the country that he'd kind of rephrased and re-released um, but this seems to be a, a kind of new creation um, it would Tamashanter is based on a well believed to be based on a real person um, from the from the town um, near Kirkalloway and Suter Johnny is also believed to be based on a real person, which is how we've managed to have his many times great granddaughter on the show. Uh, he was influenced by folklore an awful lot, and they put a lot of that down to a friend of his mother's. I think there is actually a distant cousin, Betsy Davidson, who Tamish, uh, not Tamishanter, who Robert Burns held up to be um, one of the great folklorists of the time. She had apparently, according to him anyway, the greatest collection in the country of folk tales and folklore and folk songs um, and she actually kind of nannied him a bit as he was younger and taught him a lot of these stories and was a real influence behind a lot of him going out and finding these songs, releasing those songs or coming up with poems like Tamashanter. So there's a, a bit about Tamashanter and I think my favourite Halloween story. Poor Meg. I think I say that every time we read that story. Her poor tail. She's just trying her best. She's a very faithful horse. I think most of the horses I've seen would be very much startled at the fact of an entire pack of warlocks, <laughs> the devil, and a witch chasing her. Yeah, she must be sick of him every market day, <laughs> getting pissed, chatting up the barmaids. Pissing off the witches. The the wife gets it in the story as the one that's bad off by it, but I think it's Meg that really gets the brunt of it. Definitely. Yeah, Meg's the one has got weight on him. I think if you were going to like recontest, obviously folktales, they adapt based on the time that they're in. And I think you could recontextualise this one as a warning against creepy men catcalling people. Because if he didn't do that, he'd be fine and his horse would be fine. Well, that's the, the last line they say about drink, but they also say about watching out for for anyone that's after sarks. cutty sarks, yeah? Because yeah. a, a cutty sark, that's just a short skirt, basically, wasn't it? It was like a cut, it was like a sark that she'd cut off. That is the best part. I'm glad you put in the bit where he walks past and he's like, oh, that's where that wifey hung herself and that's where those uh, 
those bairns were murdered and yeah just just you know walking home and those are things that go through your mind when you're walking home like late at night alone you're like oh god remember that happened over there i think if i was walking home though or like riding home at that time and i would maybe avoid some of these specific places <laughs> rather than it seems like hit every haunted place you could on route it's it's nuts to to go there and you can go to the church and then walk up and see the bridge and you see like that's where Tamashana had this flight. It's good as well because I think we've all met someone who tells you a story and it starts off with like, oh, you know, I was walking to Tesco and I fell. To By the time they're telling it to like the fifth person, they're like, and I was pushed and I nearly died and a car came this close to my head. So I can, I can see... Uh, Robbie sitting in a, a, taver- a tavern or a pub or whatever and having some guy be like oh and there was warlocks and witches and he's just like oh great stuff keep going You're trying to explain why he's arrived home dishevelled and you know <laughs> out of breath and his horse is missing a tail and he's like well you, you know when, when he's looking in the, the windows and he sees all of the you know the, the tomahawks and the irons from thieves and all, all that sort of stuff and there's apparently a verse that he, he cut out because his friend asked him to. But it was about um, lawyers' tongues turned inside out and priests' hearts as black as whatever. And his friend, who was a, his friend who I think was either like a lawyer or a judge or something, was like, could you maybe just not put that bit in? I think I saw reference to that being cut out in the old... Burns book that we've got. It's got like some footnotes and things, and I'm sure there's a mention to do with lawyer tongues in that one. So, yeah, Burns interesting was... that even he on that gruesome list censored himself a little bit. Maybe that's where his unlawful was. Maybe it was his judge friend said you can't put that in, so he put that in in its stead. <laughs> it's such a good. It's such a good one, though. He's such. He's such a good writer. Like you listen to that even in school as a kid, and you're like, yeah, I could get into this. I always thought that the like the witches and the ghouls party always sounded so cool. Like they sounded like they were having such a blast. It's, it sounded like a great laugh. Like I want the devil to come and pipe at my parties. It's the fact that to be fair, it actually does just sound like a high school Halloween party. In my head, they're dancing to the monster mash. Yeah, I always loved listening to Tamashant. There was one guy in uh, my village at, at Burns Night. He could recant the whole thing off by heart, and he'd move round the room with the full dramatic expressions and his kilt and everything. Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Next week, you can look forward to another Campfire Tales episode followed by a trip into the Greenwood with Rosie and Cathy the week after that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.